Thanks for joining us here on Service to School Stories. Your hosts for this season are Alec Emmert, Service to School CEO and Navy veteran. And Sydney Mathis, Chief Program Officer and former College Admissions Officer. This season will cover topics as it relates to higher education, military service transition, and career opportunities and outcomes for veterans. Join us as we share student stories, inside tips from the admissions office, and conversations with employers actively hiring student veterans. Here we go. All right, everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Service to School Stories podcast. Today, I'm joined by Lieutenant Colonel Trivius Caldwell. Trivius commissioned in the Army as an infantry officer from Tuskegee University, and he is currently pursuing a PhD in literature at Duke University. Trivius's military service includes tours in Iraq and Afghanistan and throughout the Pacific, most recently with 25th ID. Trivius, I'm really excited to chat with you today to learn a little bit about your education journey, how you're now pursuing a PhD while still in active duty, and what that experience um, from the military directly to the classroom has looked like for you. So excited to have you here. Can you share with our listeners a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Thanks for the intro. I really appreciate that. Hey, so like you said, um, I graduated in 2006 from Tuskegee. Uh, I'm a native of Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and I did ROTC uh, at Tuskegee University. Um, that was my commissioning source into the Army. Um, you know, I, I served in Mechanized Infantry Unit, deployed twice out of the 3rd Infantry Division out of Fort Benning, now Fort Moore, Georgia. Um, and then I went on to serve in the 82nd Airborne Division as a company commander uh, before, you know, going to my first academic institution, which was Auburn University. Uh, I had a chance to go do my, my master's degree there. I spent two years at Auburn University, uh, and my sole job was as a student. So I went through that matriculation process uh, for that. Um, coming out of uh, my master's program at Auburn, I ended up uh, teaching at West Point, United States Military Academy. Um, and that was a two-year stint for me. Um, again, immersed in, in academia because you know at West Point, and maybe we'll talk about this later, had an opportunity to do some academic conferences um, and so that helped enable my application process for the PhD program. Uh, now, I'm a bit of an anomaly uh, because most active duty military officers don't go off and do a PhD. Um, but I did. I guess I did okay at West Point because they want to bring me back as a permanent professor. And um, uh, the prerequisite for that is to earn a PhD. So, you know, I go off and I do my field grade time in the 25th Infantry Division in Hawaii. Um, and as I was serving as a field grade, I was simultaneously applying to PhD programs. Um, and so I leveraged my, my experience from Auburn uh, to do some of that work, and we'll talk about that later. Um, but I got accepted to Duke and a couple other schools, and I chose Duke. Uh, so I PCS here. This is my assignment right now, um, which is pretty cool. Um, the, the caveat, though, is I only have three years to do the, the PhD. Ooh. Um, which is not a lot of time, right, when you consider P, uh, PCSN and then coursework and dissertation. Then I'll, I'll transition out of here and go do my, uh, my battalion command time, right? Um, so that's how I got to where I am now, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, and, and we'll talk about the education pursuit. But essentially, I'm trying to answer uh, very scholarly questions that I had back at Tuskegee. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's, you know, I kind of have my cake and eat it too, you know, if you will. So that's, that's where I am now. Yeah, absolutely. Let's start back at the beginning of your educational journey. So it sounds like you knew you wanted to serve. That's, you know, it was kind of the focus and in, in going into ROTC. How did you land on Tuskegee as your undergraduate institution? Yeah, so um, that's a good question. Uh, I had a lot of mentors. So in high school, I was in junior ROTC. 
And the cadre members, uh, inner city, Atlanta, Georgia, you know, most of them looked like me. Um, and most of them had gone to HBCUs. And so they actually, you know, picked me up and took me to the different HBCUs. Now I'm from Atlanta, so Morehouse and Clark Atlanta mm -hmm. University is right there. Um, but Tuskegee was interesting because it was down the road. It was more rural than I was used to. Mm -hmm. uh, but because of the mentorship that I had in J-Rotsey, I was able to go down there. But that guy was an alumni and he took me down and, uh, and walked me right into the president's office and got me a scholarship right off the bat. <laughs> um, now, he was a prior service um, uh, lieutenant colonel, served in the Vietnam War, but he was also a Tuskegee alumni. And so the network there helped me matriculate into Tuskegee, um, and, and that's how I started going there. Now, for me, I, I didn't have any ambitions on going to college in terms of academic pursuits. I just liked J. ROTC, right? I liked oh. ROTC, and, and I figured if I can go to school and join ROTC and get a scholarship while doing it, then that, you know, I'll study whatever I need to. Um, so the, the academics came on the backside of, of right. the ROTC stuff. Oh, that's interesting. Like the degree was kind of like the cherry on top. You yeah. got to do <laughs> the rest of it. But at the same time, right. you you got to kind of scratch that itch of serving. That's great. Um, okay, so from there, when did you decide and what made you decide to now go back to school at Auburn? And what yeah. did you study there? So I studied English literature, just a, it's a broad survey sort of uh, course. Now, when I was deployed in Iraq, my company commander, um, he taught at West Point. Now, at that, this point, I hadn't heard about teaching opportunities at West Point. You know, I'm an infantry officer in combat, right? I'm not thinking about that at all. Um, but I think he picked up on the fact that I enjoyed to read. Um, I enjoyed deep thinking. And he said, well, you might want to apply to West Point. Now, unbeknownst to me, uh, there ain't a lot of black guys in infantry as officers, first off, and there are not a lot of black English teachers, <laughs> right? When I went to uh, Auburn, I was the only male in my cohort, black male in my cohort. I'm the only black male here at Duke in my cohort. And so that makes me a bit of an anomaly, right? Mm -hmm. um, but he taught me, about, he told me about it. And the idea of stabilization, you know, yes. for my family, uh, to spend two years just doing grad work. And that's my army assignment. I'm from Atlanta, Auburn's really close. Mm -hmm. um, that was enticing. But, but furthermore, you know, to get a free master's degree and then have an opportunity to teach, coach, and mentor at the United States Military Academy, I couldn't really pass that up. You know, I don't know who would. And so I just took advantage of that. Um, and, and that has some benefits to it. Yeah, absolutely. And then so after your time at Auburn, how did you, dis how did you choose Auburn? Well, you, oh, you got me thinking back now. Um <laughs> How did I choose Auburn? I think it was stability. You know, I think, you know, my, my wife's from Tuskegee um, and, you know, Auburn is close to Tuskegee. It's also close to Atlanta, but it's far enough away from Atlanta to keep me away from the, the local problems there. Right. Um, which is the reason why I went to Tuskegee in the first place. You know, growing up mm. in the city, I kind of know what that's about. Um, yep. I have friends there. And so I kind of wanted to get away a little bit. So Auburn was just far enough away where I could respond to my family and my wife's family, but still have some autonomy uh, in a place that I knew about, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think the other piece, too, is that I was reluctant about getting into a good school, if I'm honest. You know, I'm not a great test taker. And uh, I just, I bummed the GRE. You know, I had a good GPA, but, um, and I hope folks don't get mad when I say this, but Auburn was my safe school. You know, it just was. And, um, and I ended up getting in. Now, you know, to veterans out there, uh, this is a benefit because I did not know or understand at the time that the, the skills that I acquired in the Army 
uh, would transcend credentials in terms of GPA, GRE. They didn't care about any of that stuff. What they cared about was that, you know, I could lead teams. I was interpersonal. I had a sense of urgency. I was a critical thinker. And this was my job. Right. So right. I can't fail. I'm going to show up to class. I'm going to contribute uh, because the government's paying for this thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for them, it's an asset. They don't lose. The institution lose. So once I learned that, when I figured that out, then I started to leverage that um, because, you know, at that point, I'm not a liability to the institution. Um, and I'm coming in and, and, and doing them a service and they're doing me a service. So um, so that's that's kind of why Auburn. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So now when you were in the classroom at Auburn, have you always had dreams of going on to a PhD program? You talk a little bit in your intro about wanting to research and answer questions that you had while you were at Tuskegee. And I'm assuming that kind of is the precursor to your dissertation topic. Is that where you were going with that? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I, you know, I never dreamed of a, a PhD and truth be told, you know, I've been a Duke fan since 92 and I never, never dreamed of being here because I always thought it was like this very pretentious, you know, un- inaccessible place, which it, it kind of is. Now, now that I'm seeing it. Um, but I got to tell you, um, you know, I think the army sending me in this, this direction. Uh, I'll be a fool to say no to that. Right. Um, but but I will tell you um, the question that I had, and this is getting more into sort of the sociocultural aspect of it, had to do with hip hop music. Right. Growing up in a small city, um, you know, you listen to this music, you don't really understand what it is, but it does something to you. And you know that there's something there. So I've been chasing questions about what that what is that sound like? What's happening there? And that's what I studied at Tuskegee. The benefit of an HBCU is that you get a cultural immersion alongside the academics. Absolutely. Um, At Auburn is different. Right. Going from HBCU to PWI is much different because it's bigger. You're, You're almost not you're not the focus right as you are in an hbcu it's a smaller environment but i can still ask those questions from a broader perspective now because now i'm getting into graduate level work which is critical mm-hmm. theory and i can think about the world more more deeply in a graduate program um chasing questions like that at west point i think demonstrated to the folks there that i was serious about trying to find an answer and i didn't care about credential i really didn't and, and that's enticing for people. Most folks on graduate applications that I talk to here at Duke or at Auburn, um, what they tell me is that everybody's resume is good, right, mm-hmm. with stats. Everybody has GPAs and test scores. So they don't even look at that stuff. What they tend to look at is what are you doing in terms of, you know, practicability, utilitarian work? Like, what are you doing to answer the questions that you're professing on this statement of purpose, right? So if you're saying you want to be a nonprofit leader, what have you done toward that end, you know, before you come to the institution, right? Mm-hmm. So some of those intangibles that we do every day in the Army, um, people tend to take for granted because they're focused on grades, and and that's not it. The grades ain't it, <laughs> you know. Ooh, let's dig into that a bit. Okay, so statement of purpose. We have a service to school here. We have an other grad team. On the other grad team, it encompasses – degree programs that are maybe a master's in finance, but we do have a really solid number of either active duty service members or veterans that are pursuing a PhD program. And one of the things they come to us for help with, one, is the resume, and two, is that statement of purpose. So 
How important do you think it is for someone pursuing a PhD program to already have an understanding of the research that they want to do? Um, it's important, but not as important as folks think, right? It's more important to have a set of questions um, that you're interested in, right? I started my statement of purpose with the statement, I'm a 40-year-old black man interested in hip-hop, period. That was my first sentence, right? Um, because I want to pour myself into the scholarship. So it's not really important that I have an understanding of what it is I want to study. Otherwise, I, you know, I wouldn't have to go to school. Um, what's more important is to say that, hey, I've been, I've been thinking about these questions for quite a while, uh, and I'm not sure I have the answer, but like I'm really enthusiastic about it. And here's how I see it working out in my life, in my experience. You know, for example, mm. um, soldiers listen to music on deployment to relax and to de-stress. Well, what is it about the sound that brings their anxiety down? What, what's happening there, right? That's an a aspect into the, into the scholarship. And nine times out of 10, most of the, uh, the folks reading these applications or these statements of purpose have no military experience. So they're already intrigued, yep. right? They, they're already, they're already going to keep reading when you leverage your military experience. Whether or not you deploy, it doesn't matter. The fact that you're part of diverse teams, you know, month in and month out, that's appealing to people that sit in an ivory tower who, who never kind of go out, you know. That's a generalization, but, but generally speaking, you know, they're interested in those stories. And so my advice would be to tell, tell an enticing story. Like, tell your story and be authentic, because if you're not, they will they will find that right. Um, and then the other one, you know, this would this would sound simplistic, but you know, uh, choose your adjectives wisely. <laughs> you know, you, you choose those wisely. Um, but you know, I, I think you guys do a good job services school helping folks out by pairing pairing the candidates to uh, to mentors. Uh, but that's been my experience. Is just be true true to yourself and tell a good story. Absolutely. And I mean, that rings true from our undergraduate team all the way up through our graduate teams. That's one of the biggest points I try and hit home when I'm talking with students about their personal statement, or even it sounds like now with their statement of purpose too, is that for the most part, majority of college applicants, regardless of the degree program, have not served in the military. So that already puts you into a unique ability to share, you know, an experience that the admissions reader has is probably not going to read in other applications, right? I use the examples with our undergraduate applicants of most high school students are in a club. Most high school students are in a sport. They've all, you know, done the same essentially curriculum for the last four years. But you know what a majority of them haven't done is served in the military. So how can we leverage that experience to now be an exciting essay that comes across an admissions reader's desk. I read applications and I mean, you kind of get tired of reading the same story about soccer or about DECA, right? Like I want to read something new after reading hundreds of admissions essays. So this is the chance for you to like, truly you have an experience that already allows you to stand out. So let's capitalize on it. Yeah. Yeah. So part of that is, is knowing how to create your digital footprint to communicate that, right? So a lot of people take for granted that they have a digital avatar out there working for them, you know, i.e. LinkedIn, right? When you submit these applications, these folks go to Google and they type your name in. And so they, they look for that digital footprint. I've seen people do it. Um, and, and then how you craft that language in terms of what you've done. You know, if you've been in an S3 shop, you don't put, you know, S3 shop, you put operations officer, yes. you know, assistant operations officer. If you've been an executive officer, you put CEO, you know, these terms and being able to translate your experiences, I think, speaks volumes, um, especially when you start talking budget and, and scope of responsibility. 
Um, because the army lingo doesn't always translate into the civilian world. And people tend to just put that aside, you know, they can't quickly understand it. Uh, so building your digital footprint and then, you know, being deliberate about how you communicate your skills is really important. Yes. I mean, that is that is so important to be able to present your resume or your story in a way that they understand, right? It's kind of like you got to come into their world for a second and, and help them understand how you fit in their world. Um, which I mean, to your initial point about mentorship, right? Like that is truly the power of working with someone that has kind of paved that path and can, you know, kind of open up those blind spots for an applicant. Um, I want to go into a little bit further. So when you were applying to the PhD programs, where did you go for help? Who did you seek out, um, for guidance and kind of navigating that admissions process? Because it's, a little bit more involved, it sounds it like. Is. Yeah, it's very much more involved. I had a set of mentors and I, I kind of built a network in academia from a master's program and teaching at West Point. So I tend to stay in contact with uh, those mentors outside of the Army um, that have to do with academics. Um, a lot of people, don't, they don't broaden their network. I mean, the Army is kind of all they got, which is, which is fine to a certain extent. But if you're looking to do academia, especially at the graduate level, you want to hold on to those undergrad teachers who influence you or those the master's instructors that influence you. Uh, one of the things that I did, and I would encourage everybody to do this, if you're interested in architecture or law or business, whatever it may be, um, Google the different schools that you're interested in and look at the faculty list. Their email addresses are on those lists. So one of the things that I did was I, I looked at schools, Vanderbilt, Duke, UNC, a couple of other schools, and I just emailed the faculty members and I said, hey, I'm thinking about applying here. Here's what I'm interested in. I went to their LinkedIn. I went to their bio and I didn't have to read extensively to know that these instructors are interested in the same things that I am interested in. So I give them a little candy, you know, I say, hey, I, re I read your article on this. And I read a paragraph. Right. And, and this says that. And so they're, they're intrigued by that. And we schedule a phone call. So now what you do is you, you already you project yourself before the application even goes in. And what tends to happen at these tables is the faculty members get around the table with all these applications and they'll say, well, who knows Trivius? Oh, I know Trivius. I talked to him a month ago. We had a great conversation about X, Y, Z. So you're already sort of at the table before you get there. So it, it takes a little bit of work, you know, but, but in work, I'm talking about emailing and making a couple of phone calls. Sure. Um, yeah. So that's one thing. Another would be to uh, to visit if you can. Um, and this is really interesting. With Facebook, LinkedIn, you, you can access the students, right? So what students are in the department that you want to kind of go to and just call them and say, hey, I'm, I'm curious and coming. I just want to hear about your experience. Yeah. You know, what's your experience been? And that they'll talk to you. The students will talk to you. And, and guess what? Those students talk to the faculty members, right? Because those students are usually doing the new recruitment orientation, mm -hmm. right? They test out for that. So it's just finding different ways to project yourself before the application goes in. Yeah. And did you have to do interviews for PhD programs? I did. I did. And, and so my interviews consisted of the second phone call with the same faculty that I reached out with before. Right. So, you know, before I even submitted my application, I talked to three professors in the department that I was going to. And I had an interview with one of those three. So it, it became a formality. It's like, oh, Travis, I already talked to you. I know what you're about, but we got to have this discussion. You know, it was one of those things. So I kind of beat them to the punch with the interview. Um, in the interview, some of the questions that were asked of me 
um, was uh, why are you interested in X, Y, Z, whatever mm-hmm. it is? Like, what interests you about it? Um, you know, what do you plan to do with this PhD? Yeah. Um, because, you know, for me, I'm English, but not all English PhDs teach, right? So, you know, they want to hear honestly what, what you want to do. If you want to, you know, use the PhD, for me, it was to answer a set of questions. And, and um, I had to be careful because um, my endeavor in the PhD world is not my primary duty. Like, I'm a soldier first. Yep. But I can't tell the professor, hey, I have no interest in, you know, com- committing to a scholarly field or publishing. I- I'm just trying to do this thing. I can't tell them that. So sure. I have to try to meet them where they are because I don't want to downgrade what they do. I really respect what they do. But at the same time, you know, what what I communicated was, hey, this Ph.D. goes beyond the discipline. It's an effort to, you know, nurture my critical thinking ability. It is a, a way to think about reading more deeply about a topic that interests me. Um, I was honest about the stability. You know, I, this would be great for my family, three years, you know, stable. Um, and the difference between grad and, and, and undergrad is that you're not taking 18 credits, right? You, you got about two or three classes a week and the rest of the time is yours, right? So you, you got to figure that out. It's not like undergrad where you're going from nine to four almost every day and you're locked into a campus situation. You could be, if you choose to stay there. But generally speaking with grad work, you, you have another life that you're outside, negotiating right. outside of the work. Um, and so just being honest in the interview. Yeah. Yeah. And let's talk about that classroom experience a little bit. Um, so you mentioned you're taking, you go to class maybe two times a week. What is the course load like? What are the expectations? Do you have assignments, homework, tests? Talk to us about what the PhD class experience is like first undergrad. Yeah. So uh, some unwritten rules here. So um I ain't going to get in trouble when I say this. So they, they really don't care about grades in the PhD. Right? Like you have to try to fail. Like you have to try to fail. Nobody's caring about grades. Um, they're usually seminar styles, so it's a lot of reading for me. Mm-hmm. I think the same is true for, for business. Um, I, I can't speak to, to the sciences or whatnot. Um, but when I say a lot of reading, I'm talking about, you know, 250 to 300 pages a week type of situation but you learn to strategically read there mm-hmm. but when you come into the, the classes you know my classes are usually two and a, two and a half hours maybe two hours and, and 45 minutes um twice weekly i'm done with coursework now so I, I have one class every friday um but you sit around with your cohort members it's about eight or nine of us um and we talk about the readings in a very deep and nuanced way to try to get to the formulation of new knowledge but here's mm-hmm. the great part about the phd work is everybody brings their experience into the space, despite your discipline, unless it's like, you know, two plus two is four. You can't argue with that type of stuff, right? Um, but anything else, you know, people want to leverage your, your world experience. So for me, coming from the military, I get into the classroom, um, you know, with folks that are of my age, PhD, you're dealing with folks that are your age, your peers. Um, but they've been in, in the books the whole time. They don't have a lot of real world experience. So when we're talking about a theory or, or a reading, um, then I can apply that to deployments or being on teams mm-hmm. in the military, and I can come at it from a much different perspective. Absolutely. And what ends up happening is that um, I end up helping the instructor teach, right? Because even the instructor doesn't have my experiences, right? So it's really fulfilling from that perspective. Um, there are some downside too. To that classroom and that is that you know being a veteran 
people will assume things about you. So if I'm in a post-colonial theory course, then I am the neo-colonial guy in the class because I'm a part of the U.S. Army, right? And so now I gotta, I have the burden of being a representative of the Army, if I choose to be, to demonstrate to them that, no, we're critical thinkers too, and we have an ethical and moral code too. We don't just go around blowing things up, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, um, but it's fun. It's fun having these discussions because quite frankly, we're scared to have them in the Army. Yeah, I mean, especially some of the deep social cultural stuff that, that we tend to get into. We don't like to have that, that, those discussions in the military. And then you mentioned you have one class on Friday. So what are you doing with all of your free time? I'm writing my dissertation <laughs> <laughs> and I'm playing on PlayStation. <laughs> yeah, I'm honest. So, um, so yeah, I, I spend um, about two to three hours a day writing two pages uh, of my dissertation. I spend about three or four hours thinking about that, so I could probably be running, or if I'm, if I'm playing a video game, um, you know, which I just got. So uh, <laughs> you're listening to the soundtrack of the video game, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. No, I'm thinking about the ideas in my head, right? Uh, while I'm passively be playing Call of Duty to, to keep <laughs> something within the army. Anyway, um, but then no, the family, right? Because uh, the army asks a lot of me uh, over the years. So I tried to deliberately now give back to my family in a way that I couldn't before with time. Um, so it's, it's been a great, I mean, this is three years. I just, you yeah. know, I mean, it's, that's pretty significant. Absolutely. Amanda, who is our producer for our listeners, is on the call and we're both active duty military spouses. So we understand the time that our service members spend away from the family can sometimes be hard. But that is, I mean, having the, the three years there with your family is incredibly um, valuable yeah. outside of the classroom. Um, but for our listeners who don't maybe don't don't know what a dissertation is, um, what what are you writing? Yeah, so um, so this is about a 250-page document that's like really well-resourced and, uh, and sourced out. Um, but essentially, my topic, my dissertation has to do with Nas's Illmatic album, rap album. And I'm reading, um, I'm reading different works of literature from Ralph Ellison, Toni Morrison, and Ta-Nehisi Coates through Nas's Illmatic album. Right, so what I'm trying to figure out is for folks in, in low-income neighborhoods, uh, for people who listen to to music or, you know, they, they, they live through the legacy of uh, segregation and disenfranchisement or post-industrialism, but they hear this music that's explaining the circumstances for their situation, but they can't quite, you know, explain it themselves. They don't have the language mm -hmm. for it. So I'm trying to figure out what what is, is the space that is afforded in the music that we listen to um, and the music as it feeds the literature of the 20th century and how the literature feeds the music of the 20th century. So uh, I'm exploring that gap, right? So each chapter will look at a different genre of music from the blues all the way up to hip hop now to make a connection that for black folks, that is the, the, the sort of thread of identity that, that mm -hmm. predates the Middle Passage, right? That comes all the way up to hip hop. Um, this has nothing to do with the army infantry, yeah. right? Except for the fact that we march to cadence and we sing cadence. Mm -hmm. Right. When we run and music is all around us, but we don't ever think about the significance of it. Right. So, um, you know, everything we do is on a is on a cadence in the military. Mm -hmm. um, so that has to do with sound as well. So that so I'm writing on that and I'm just two pages a day is uh, keeping the professor away. Yes. So 250 pages. Yeah. You that's um, probably a lot more than most have written. 
Um, and I think can sound a little daunting. So that's probably where a lot of your time management for, that you learned from the military also kind of comes into play and supports you in that endeavor. Yeah. Well, well part of it, too, is, you know, for folks going to undergrad, especially the starting this journey through your program or through graduate school, my, my advice is to keep everything. Right. So when I write, I don't throw away anything. So so what I'm getting now, what I'm producing now is just a revised version of something I wrote 10 years ago. I'm looking at it from a different lens. So when I say I'm writing 250 pages, I'm already starting with 75 pages, oh, right? Smart. That I've written years back. So I don't I don't throw anything away. It's a it's a development, right? And so this is one thing that really discourages folks from from sticking it out, getting the PhD. They drop out because knowledge is never complete. So people don't fin a good PhD, a good dissertation is a done is a finished dissertation, right? <laughs> That's what I've been told, and 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 you know I see a lot of people kind of just they fall off because they they spend so much time researching they never mm -hmm. write anything. So at a certain point you got to put something down and just yeah. have yeah have the, the the understanding that you're never going to reach the end of it, right? Knowledge is continually building. So even when I get a PhD, I'm not done. Right. I still I will still have these questions. There would just be deeper questions than what they were before. And, and I've made my peace with that. Right. right. And, and so I feel like, uh, you know, that's something that my peers, they struggle with. They struggle mm -hmm. with big time. I see how that also plays out in our undergraduate admissions essays, right? Sometimes I tell a student, look, we can do drafts, we can do edits, we can do this over and over and again. But at some point, done is good enough. That's so, right. On that last note, what is your last piece of advice for someone who is pursuing a PhD program or a graduate program at that with their, with your experience at um, Auburn? Yeah, um, that's a good question. Uh, you got to know why you're doing it, right? You have to know why you're doing it because, you know, unless you're going to be a neuroscientist or something like that, um, you're going to make some sacrifices when it comes to finances, you know, if, if you kind of away from the mil military. Um, or if you have another job while you're doing grad work, um, your time is going to get cut in half, right? Um, you don't have to do everything, okay? You can be deliberate about saying no. Like, know what you're going to say no to. I tell my professors before the semester starts, hey, I'm not reading everything. It's not because I don't want to. It's just I don't, I don't have the time to. And I'm not going to mm -hmm. pretend like I'm going to read 100% of everything you, you assign. I'm going to find something I'm interested in, and I'm going to stop right there and dive deep. Um, and then that's what I will bring to class to contribute. Um, but for grad work, I mean, I think a lot of people get wrapped around this inferiority complex because they feel like they have to conquer it all. And you don't. You have enough. Like you have enough experience from the military. You come in and you couple that with, with the discipline that you're trying to study. That's enough. And people will see it right off the bat. So you don't have to try to pretend to compete with your peers because, frankly speaking, they're going to be trying to keep up with you. Right. I think your threshold for, for work is, is deep in a way that your peers are not. Um, and then the other thing, the last piece of advice I, I would give them on grad work is to just have fun because this is an opportunity for exploration. There are a lot of people in this in this country who are not afforded the time to think deeply about anything. Right. Mm -hmm. We're moving so fast and we don't stop to think, well, it's a privilege to have time to think. Right. And, and in essence, that's kind of what you're paying for. That's why school so expensive. Right. You're paying for the time to think it shouldn't be that way. Time is free. But, you know, if you're in school and you're in a, in a seminar where you can contemplate things, then you should lean into the things that make you uncomfortable. 
explore that stuff and, and be, you know, be thankful that you have the time to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Travis, thank you for the time to have this conversation with you. Um, I'm really excited for our listeners, especially those on our other grad team to kind of explore this conversation and think a little bit more like your, to your point of, you know, why are they pursuing the degree programs that they are? So this has been so fun, such a joy. Um, and we are really excited to have you on the team as an ambassador um, supporting applicants. So thanks again for all you do to support Service to School. No, thank you. I appreciate it. That's all we have for this episode. Join us next week, same time, same place, where we share more Service to School stories. Service to School Stories is hosted by Sydney Mathis, Chief Program Officer, and Alec Emmert, Service to School CEO. Our podcast is produced and edited by our Director of Communication, Amanda Tobias. Service to School is a 501c3 nonprofit providing free college admission support to transitioning service members and veterans. Join us next week and follow us for more on your favorite social media platforms.